Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is in the, I guess it's the nutmeg state of Connecticut. How are things I, in Connecticut, Frank? Uh, things in Connecticut are great, David. I've just arrived in the United States. Uh, I'm briefly here um, on behalf of the university to do a number of events uh, in mainly in New York and in Toronto over the next week or so. But it's, so I apologize for being uh, remote. Well, I'll never be remote from you in reality. No, no, David, you're but I'm physically remote heart, from you now. Yes, yes. <laughs> but right. uh, yes, hello, everybody. Everything's fine in Connecticut. That, that's good to hear. So uh, for those of you who are, are keeping a, a time stamp on things, we're recording this on November 10th. But we're not going to be talking about the midterms today because we will be talking about the midterms in a little bit less than two weeks with the History Society on November 23rd, where we're going to have a, a live event. It's our first live show in a number of years, I guess, Frank. Uh, it is, yeah. I mean, we did a I few pre-COVID, but this is our first post-COVID live event. event. So so we'll be doing that with the History Society to talk about the, the midterms, and hopefully we'll have a full uh, outcomes available then obviously this is still some seats up for grabs at the moment so uh, yeah it's not quite clear what's happened although it does seem to have been an uh an uh, interesting night but we'll have a lot to yes. say it should be said the edinburgh university history society uh, yes. we do have listeners beyond the university of edinburgh david fair fair enough fair enough good point all right so our topic uh for this week though is university admissions it is after all university admissions season i guess people are parents are taking their uh, perspective, uh, their children, prospective students to universities on tours at the moment. Uh, and the questions of university admissions are not only prevalent to the minds of students and parents, but of the Supreme Court, which heard a case this week, which may upend uh, some of how university admissions work, at least in, in, in many places. So we talk about the history of, of who gets in and who doesn't get in, and how all that works. Uh, yeah, that's the topic for the week. Excellent. So Frank, if if I wanted to go to I don't know Harvard University in say 1636, they open their doors and they say, "What do they say about who gets to go?" Well, in 1636, they want to know whether you know any have any familiarity with uh, Greek and Latin and any desire to become a minister, and probably <laughs> probably who are your parents. Hmm. Um, and you know, are they church members or something like that? And you will almost certainly come from the Boston area, maybe slightly further afield in Massachusetts, but not much further than that. Uh, and so in, in the 17th century, the kind of institutions that we're familiar with Harvard in particular are obviously much smaller than they are today, but also, um, they're really, created to educate and train ministers. In the 18th century, they become a little broader. So we add Yale to the list, for example, by the 18th century. But even then, you, 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 admissions is really about whether you, first of all, you'll be younger than students who are applying today. So you'd probably mm -hmm. be in your early teens. Um, but, but, the emphasis is really on whether you have a kind of smattering of a, of a classical education or, or the, the foundation for what will be a classical education that you'd get at, at these, these particular institutions and who your parents are. Then, you know, sort of a, there's a kind of um, 
unspoken but important character test. So, you know, people have to attest to your, your uh, probably your local minister who himself would have gone to Harvard or Yale might have to kind of uh, attest to your character, you know, guarantee that you're not, you know, guilty of witchcraft or something like that. Interestingly, by the time John Adams goes to Harvard in the uh, mid 18th century or, or first half of the 18th century, um, well, middle of the 18th century, excuse me, he's, you know, the class is organized by wealth. So, so you're, 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 we're used to ranking class, you know, and we hear about how, you know, John McCain being at the back of his class at the Naval Academy, for example. Well, in the 18th century, they also had class rank, but it was done according to social status, not according to to uh, academic achievement. So, so that's an important difference. Uh, other institutions, William and Mary's founded in the late 17th century. Um, my boy Jefferson studies there for a little while, but and he, what does he have to do to get in? He basically has to turn up. I mean, <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean, well, he's been trained. You know, he has studied under a series uh, which is very common uh, for the Southern aristocracy. He he has a number of tutors who prepare him. Mm. Uh, a couple of whom are quite good. And he works on languages and things like this. The, the the standard is not unlike that that we see at Harvard at the same time. You need you need to demonstrate an awareness of uh, classical languages and classical culture. Um, and you kind of turn up, you pay and and you you go for a few years. And you the, the, the you know, Jefferson never got a degree. Jefferson didn't graduate from William and Mary, uh, which so, was very common. Right. I think. Most, yeah, that's lots of people who are going to university are going for a period of, of a couple of years and then leaving when they have other things to do. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And so I, again, to take Jefferson's case, he leaves without a degree, which means it's slightly dodgy for uh, William and Mary to claim him as an alumnus as they do, but th we'll leave that aside because uh, <laughs> we'll get to marketing probably later in the, in sure. the course of this discussion. Uh, but then when, you know, Jefferson then wanted to become a lawyer. And so he read law, which is a kind of British expression for studying a subject, but it, it, it was relevant then. So he read law with a prominent lawyer, George Wythe, who became his tutor and then took the bar, bar exam. So he never yeah. got a degree because you didn't need a degree. If, the only people who need degrees in the 17th and 18th centuries are actually ministers. So they stick around usually and get degrees. So you'll see a doctorate of divinity after somebody's name or something like that. But but the vast majority of other students who go who, who go to uh, higher education, it's a very small number of people, mm. don't necessarily, don't stay to get a degree in the, in the modern sense of the world, a word. And there's no kind of, shame attached to that. It's just, it was a different system. I, I think that's more or less the case in for many of these places really until the, the civil war era, right? That you've got, you know, who gets in is, is based on in part on, or who both gets in and gets to go, which seems to be the sort of the same category are the, the sons of, of wealthy people. You know, you see letters occasionally in, in university presidents and correspondence where a important citizen will say, I'm sending my son to you in September, he's kind of a dunderhead, but he's of good stock and have mild character or something, you know, and the kid will show up and, and go to the university without actually having a sort of formal um, admissions procedure of any meaningful kind. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, uh, George Washington has a very difficult stepson, Jackie Costas. And George and Martha Washington despair about Jackie Custis's education um, because he's basically more interested in chasing women and drinking and gambling and dressing well than he is in 
reading, writing, arithmetic. Mm. Um, and, and George's solution to kind of get him away from the temptations of the Tidewater is to send him away to New York, <laughs> that famous place for where people go to, uh, so to stay out of trouble. Uh, and, <laughs> and they send him to King's College, which is now Columbia University. Again, we're talking about in the 1760s, uh, or this is the early 1770s now, um, you know, so that he'll stay out of trouble. He, he doesn't last there. He does it. Mm. He, he drops out and goes home and, and, and marries an heiress uh, in Maryland. Uh, and Jackie Custis's educational story is not unusual. He's very, very wealthy. He, he stay, he's an heir to a, to a vast fortune. And he basically screws around and doesn't, doesn't, doesn't apply himself uh, and drives his uh, mother and stepfather to distraction as a result. I won't say everybody is like that, but, but um, it, there wasn't much, there wasn't much of a debate about whether he would get into Columbia or King's College at that point. It was, you know, mm. George basically wrote to the president and said, look, I got this kid. Can you try and sort him out yeah. for me? Please? Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and what, what's interesting though, David is after the revolution, we see the emergence of academies, which are mm. more, I mean, in some cases they are, they still exist. These institutions as, as boarding schools, um, uh, what we see is the emergence of a kind of network, especially in New England, but not only in New England, of elite um, secondary schools that then start to prepare people to go to what we now think of as the Ivy League schools. So mm -hmm. in your by your period, there is a kind of informal network, but it's pretty significant network of um, mm -hmm. in, there's a kind of hierarchy of institutions of these kind of private academies sure. or boarding schools and that 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 feed on to what we now think of as the ivy league so so by the 19th century there's a there's a there's a bit of structure and hierarchy which is notionally based on merit but like still based on mostly on are. family connections are, yeah, sure, yeah. Right? you know there's i mean there's a couple of things that are going on i think at the time in the aftermath of the revolution in the early part of the, the 19th century um you know, the first is you have the establishment of a number of state universities, yep. which, you know, so the number of universities in general increases pretty significantly. It's still, compared to the number of universities today, a very small number. It's still restricted to a very much a, 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 a elite class of, of men who could attend these institutions. Uh, but there is a sense in which, you know, the universities are there for a, a public good as well as simply reinscribing uh, people's status and powers. So, you know, the idea that state universities are there to create the next political class of leaders for the state to be governors and mayors and stuff. Um, but you know, the, the, in terms of getting in, it seems it seemed like it, it changes very significantly um, until you get, I think really until the second half of the 19th century. Uh, and I think there you've got a few other big changes in happening in higher education broadly that shape admissions. One is you have, in addition to having state universities, places like University of Virginia, University of North Carolina, University of Georgia, all of those kinds of places, um, you have the formation of, of land-grant colleges under the Morrill Act of 1862. And these were very much compared to um, the revolutionary or post-revolutionary state universities. These were designed to be much more practical universities. They were designed to be much more uh, 
pragmatic in their, their education, the kinds of subjects they're teaching. They're often teaching things like in mathematics, engineering, um, agriculture as an as a academic subject. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're embracing a much larger body of students. The universities get open to, instead of being the 1%, now it's the 5% that's getting into universities. Uh, and so universities have to start thinking about what are our criteria for who we take, right? Can, we can't just use, we can't just take the, the word of somebody that Johnny has enough education to start this program here at uh, various state universities. And so you start to find universities having requirements about who gets in starting in the late 19th century. Things like, do you have a high school diploma? Um, which becomes a, a, a thing in the late 19th century to have a, a diploma from one place to get into a kind of, uh, to, to higher education. And they have debates between themselves over what high school diploma is supposed to look like and what kinds of subjects are necessary to prepare yourself for university study. How many years of English, how many years of mathematics, history, and all these other kinds of things. And so you end up with a real hodgepodge of different kinds of admissions criteria, um, depending on what kind of university it is um, and what kinds of students they're attracting. That's right, the kind of casual, uh word of mouth well we you just know he's a good guy <laughs> exactly. uh, system that, well vouched for yes yeah. <laughs> you know that 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 emerged during the 17th and 18th centuries uh and survives into the early 19th century um uh, disappears by the end of the 19th century there's an emphasis on qualifications um uh, and practical education i mean the the, the land grant universities curricula are are there's a kind of vocational bent to them, I think, in a way that, the, you know, previously uh, the emphasis was on the classics and divinity and things like that, uh, or maybe reading a little bit of law. Now there's a, there, there's a, as, as the system becomes more democratic with a small mm -hmm. D, it also, the curriculum becomes more democratic. It becomes more, there's an emphasis on useful uh, learning, uh, which has some echoes today. And the, you know, we, we hear a lot of talk about stem in the curriculum now um and, and and we see some of that in in the latter part of the 19th century and then throughout the 20th century really isn't there is a tension between um subjects that are seen as um uh, kind of interesting but maybe peripheral to uh, by contrast to useful subjects now yeah, i think or ones uh, that prepare you for a career in particular yeah. that idea that that university is intended to be partially or exclusively about preparing someone for a job that they're going to be waiting for at the, at the end of it. Yeah. Um, what are you going to do with that? Exactly. You know, right. Then that's a question that we, we just had a history open day a couple week a little bit over a week ago. And, you know, that's a question that often gets asked, like, what is this degree useful for? Uh, and what they mean is all parents often ask the question. It's about employment. Um, you know, thinking about sort of turning points though, and how admissions work, I think, 1900 is a really important moment during the, the progressive era. I think you see a, a real uh, reevaluation of, of, of how all this is supposed to work, in part because um, there's some pushback from, from high schools where they're saying, look, each university has their own demands about what they want their student applicants to have. How are we supposed to train our students to meet these different demands if we don't, you know, if everyone's on a separate page? The universities are likewise trying to figure out how to sort of make something slightly more standardized. 
So you have the College Board established in 1900, uh, and you also have the Committee on College Admissions Requirements formed by the National Education Association. Um, you know, and both of these together are really trying to sort of figure out what is the framework for college admissions. And the College Board sort of takes the lead on this. The College Board is both has member colleges, but it is sort of separate and distinct from the universities themselves. But they offer exams starting in 1901 uh, to be sort of independent arbiters for for who uh, the the skills that high school students have that university applicants have for getting into the university. And I yeah, think that's and a I, real turning point in, in how we sort of think about admissions. Yes, this is one of the, this is a subject where sort of the turn of the century is actually a key date. So 1900 mm -hmm. isn't an approximate date. 1900 is a very significant date because it marks uh, not just the end, the end of the century or the beginning of a new century, but also uh, where this topic is concerned, there's a real institutional change with the creation of the College Board. I think what we see here, and you and I were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, is yet more evidence for the importance of the progressive period, that that period in the late 19th, early 20th century, from roughly 1890 to 1920 or so, when there's an emphasis on um, standardizing things and, and trying to uh, learn about how society operates, but also to make it more efficient and more coherent. And we see this with respect to college admissions in ways that are really quite striking and have continued that will shape college admissions in the United States to this very day. No, no, to um, be sure. You know, so, yeah. so the, 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 the kind of reforms and not all of them are good, but the kind of the structures and, and examinations and so on that emerge from this period from the progressive era have really laid the foundation for modern, um, college admissions in the United States, and and, and in ways that, frankly, I mean, I obviously knew the progressive year, know the progressive year is important, but it, where this particular topic is concerned, it's really interesting to me how lasting those those changes are, have been. So prior to 1900, it really is a different world. You yeah. know, the institutions are familiar, the names are similar. You know, the University of Virginia, or the University of North Carolina, or Harvard. Yale, etc. But it's an entirely different landscape. And, I, I, you know, 1900 really is a turning point, thanks to these kind of changes we'll see over the subsequent 20 years. Am I overstating the case, David? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think what, this is, you know, similar to other kinds of changes that are going on in the progressive era, thinking about uh, civil service reform, for instance, right? Like you know, prior to the progressives, government jobs were appointed based on who you knew or for kickbacks for things for, you know, uh, as a, as a kind of, uh, you know, something that politicians could dole out to their supporters, you know, starting with the progressive era, you start to find people taking exams to get government jobs. And I think this sort of feeds into that same model that, you know, who should get into university? Well, it should be not the sons of the elite and it shouldn't be based on how wealthy or powerful your family is, but theoretically how well you do on these, uh, you know, standardized exams. Uh, the first exams are tend to be essay exams. Uh, starting in the 1920s, they, there's more of a shift towards what we think of as standardized exams with the SAT and having um, more multiple choice kinds of exams, uh, partially because the number of students increases pretty dramatically. Yeah, and the introduction of the SAT is interesting, not least because it's still it's still around in a, mm -hmm. in a different, slightly different form, but. Uh, uh, but the 
emphasis there is on aptitude hmm. rather than mastery of subjects. So it wasn't about demonstrating how much you knew in order to get in. It was hmm. about demonstrating that the exam is meant to test one's ability and potential to succeed as a student. So it's 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 meant to assess potential rather than to assess what one already has learned. Right. And, and I think that's an important um distinction and dimension and or change in in the way college admissions is approached after the prog progressive era well and, and that shit that's an interesting shift that happens because the, these first exams that the college board has very much are the show us what you've learned kinds of exams the shift to the sat model this sort of aptitude model happens in part because of intelligence testing that's done in the first world war Right, where part of the way that they are taking recruits from the first war and saying, you know, is this 18 year old good for, you know, being in a trench or is this person better to be in an office or better to, you know, be flying a plane or something? And those kinds of intelligence tests that are developed first for the first world war are then applied pretty directly to um, university admissions. So, David, do you know when the first you you probably do, but do you know when the first kind of modern um, college application form is introduced? Um, I think I do, and I think it's nineteen nineteen with Columbia. Is that the number you have? That is the that's what my notes are showing as well. I, I think we probably read the same stuff. So, okay. so that's quite interesting because it's it's a modern um, application form. I think it's eight pages long and requires an essay, and and it's standardized. There's there's an effort again. This is what we see in the progressive era is mm. is a desire to standardize things and and introducing a college a formal application form that everybody completes who's applying is an important step there. I mean, now we take this as the norm and there are, there's the common application, which we'll probably talk about later, but, mm. but that prior to 1919, there hadn't been a, a kind of standard application form. You, I presumably yeah. kind of put, pulled your stuff together yourself and created your own application and sent it away. Now there, there's no, there's some nefarious stuff going on though with, with the first application. And that has to do um, with the, it, when they introduced these, these new tests for admissions, one of the things that happened was that there were lots of immigrants who had uh, traditionally not gone to, but gone to university uh, for a variety of reasons, do very well in these tests. In particular, there's a very large number of Jewish immigrants that end up getting admitted to Columbia and to Harvard and to other um, New England uh, and New York institutions. And there's a, there's a panic really among um, university leaders that their traditional demographic is going to be changed by the influx of so many Jewish students. Um, they speak of the Jewish problem. Yeah, you they know, do, right? Yeah, the yeah, Harvard over... University, uh, the, uh, the Harvard president Lowell talks about being overrun with Jews and, and then says, maybe we need to, and he wants to solve the Jewish problem, as he describes it. Um, and they have tricky ways of trying to figure out which of our students are Jewish. So one of the things that's on that Columbia application application form is it asks for your mother's maiden name. Right. Uh, and, and Harvard actually had a system in the 20s to try to figure out like, OK, we're you know, they had a category called J1, which was we're 100 percent sure this person's Jewish. J2, we're pretty sure this person's Jewish. And J3, we're like, yeah, we're not entirely sure this person could be. And so they're trying to very much create a quota to to minimize the or to prevent this this problem as they saw it. 
Yeah, and let's not forget this is happening exactly at the same time as the post-World War One Red Scare and the worry about Bolshevism and communist revolutionaries who are often associated with, with Judaism, mm. at least among anti-Semites. There's an anti-Semitic backlash in the United States in the 1920s, and this is this is a kind of manifestation of that. Uh, but but there, within higher education, there's a real concern hmm. that basically too many Jews are getting into elite universities because they're doing well on these exams that have been introduced, which are meant to uh, they're meant to change the emphasis of admissions from who do you know to merit and and um basically the wrong kind of people are demonstrating merit as far as some of the people who are responsible for universities are concerned uh, now what's interesting about that because it'll it will affect our our subsequent discussion and we need to bear this in mind mm -hmm. as we think about this upcoming supreme court decision um about affirmative action and, and university admissions uh that'll we think will be forthcoming in the, during this session uh, there was an active effort in the 20s basically to exclude people based on their origins, hmm. um, uh, particularly Jews, but not only Jews. And, and so there was a, there's a long history of this in, in university admissions in the United States. There's a long history of using people's backgrounds as a factor either positively, either to include people or to exclude people. So there's a long history of this going back at least a century um and and that's important and whether the court will take account of that i mean this court claims to be quite concerned with history uh or a particular version of history uh whether whether it it, it takes account of this history will be interesting mm. we won't know until the ruling comes down later in the year or next year but uh um i i think this the the uh, the degree to which anti-semitism shaped college admissions in the 1920s and 30s is is an important mm. part of this story. Right. And it, you mentioned earlier this sort of um, pipeline that exists between these elite universities and and the, the, these you know private schools that are feeding them. The 1930s is probably the apex of that system in terms of, you know, I think there's there's about 12 independent boarding schools in, in New England that are providing something like a quarter of the students who are going to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Um, and in fact, when you applied to these schools in the 30s, they would put on the application when you're applying to go to them when you're 12 or something, which university are we preparing this child to go to? And the, you know, the options were like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia. Um, you know, so if you look at like John, John F. Kennedy's high school application, they ask him not only sort of what do you want to do in high school, but which university are we preparing him for? Um, and so that's really sort of the apex of that uh, sort of elitist vision of, of admissions that, that portends to be the best and the brightest, but is in fact still very much kind of an old boy network. And those schools then, not now, but then obviously um, were very kind of tied into the old elite in America, and that is to say the old WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite yeah. um and so they're dominating those schools and, and and dominating admissions to to uh elite institutions as a result so i think about in the 30s about uh two-thirds of the graduates from those elite boarding those 12 boarding schools went to ivy league schools got into yeah. ivy league schools so yeah they weren't ivy league schools yet do you know when the ivy no. league was founded it's like 1953 or something right so yeah so it's, we always refer to this and people always think that means something it's just a 
they play football it, against each it's other. It's a sports league, yeah. That's um, but jumping forward to the fifties, I think that's a, an interesting moment. One of the big shifts in in university admissions and universities more broadly is that the, you know the demographics of universities changes fairly significantly between 1945 and 1970. And some of this has to do with the GI Bill, so that, that, that World War II veterans are getting government money to go to universities. There is a democratization of higher education during this point, so there's a lot more people generally who are going to university. University was pretty cheap in the 50s, right? If you were gonna go to a state university in the United States, you could often go for $100 um and, or less and working class people were better paid in the 1950s and 60s relatively mm. speaking so thanks to unionized labor and the, the the expansion of the economy in the aftermath of the war so yeah. so we get the, the this combination of factors you're right leads to a boom in a in higher education but a real democratization in certain ways because race is still an important limiting factor mm. for for a, for a lot of people right. although the civil rights movement is about to uh, kick off as well and and, and change change. But things. if you're thinking about sort of state support for higher education, this is sort of at its, at its apex, both with money from the federal government, but money from state governments uh, to make you know accessibility uh, very very high. Um, admissions, I think, is also changing because of you know the baby boom is changing just the number of people. By the time you get to the 60s and 70s, going to university, it just becomes. Uh, that much larger and obviously Vietnam plays a factor into this as people are men are going to university to avoid uh, or defer uh, the draft so I think it's a you know the mid 20th century is a point in which university life is changing in, in quite profound ways so where does how does race figure into this, David? And where does the, the court's decisions when it comes to questions of affirmative action? Because oh. um, that's that's the contentious issue now, and it's yes. been contentious for a while. What we what we've seen previously is lots of factors have been used uh, in terms of uh, college admissions or university mm -hmm. admissions, uh, not just academic merit. Although the use of standardized tests is meant to uh, keep things largely meritocratical uh but but where how does race figure into this come to figure in the in the 60s and 70s sure so um obviously in the well in the 50s and 60s you have a series of supreme court decisions that um open up higher education open up traditionally white universities to 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 people of all um, backgrounds and including not only people uh, african-americans and, and other people of other racial backgrounds but women and other groups. So universities are changing, opening the doors in all kinds of ways. In terms of affirmative action, I think, you know, if we're going to point to a particular moment, uh, there's a really important Supreme Court decision in 1978, uh, the University of California versus Bakke. And this is a fascinating decision in as much as the University of California is trying to diversify the people who go to the university, especially who go to their professional schools, to their law schools and their medical schools. They say, look, it's important for us to have uh, black doctors and black lawyers. So we're gonna have a, a quota of people to make sure that we get a, a good number of, of, of people admitted uh, from, from various backgrounds. 
and uh, a guy sues the, the medical school saying that, that this is unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court is really dwelling with two questions. One is, can universities use race as a factor in admissions? And the second question is, can the universities use quotas as a way of addressing questions of racial inequity in the past? And you end up with a very split Supreme Court where you've got four justices say, no, you can't use race. No, you can't have quotas. Four saying, yes, you can use race. Yes, you can have quotas. And one justice who ends up becoming the one man majority uh, for everything says, yes, you can use race. No, you can't have quotas. Uh, it's Justice Lewis Powell. And so that's sort of the framework since then, and the, the court been a series of other decisions since then that, that the Supreme Court has worked from, is that yes, race can be a factor in college admissions, but no, you can't have a quota for black students or Hispanic students or, or what have you. Um, and how different universities have addressed this, this particular uh, decision, I think you've seen a variety of different responses uh, all over the country in the years since. Um, I think that, you know, the case before the Supreme Court now is a fascinating one because it really is threatening to strike down the system that has existed for 45 years. So, so I've got two questions, David, one or two comments. Uh, one is the, the question, the issue of quotas is an interesting one because as we've seen, as we saw in the 1920s, quotas were actually used to restrict the number of Jews Hmm. going to university so so one can make a kind of if you will progressive case against quotas i don't know whether that was powell's intent or not saying actually quotas could be problematic because they can be used against um certain groups uh or to 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 the disadvantage hmm. of certain groups so so i think that's an interesting element to this uh the second observation i'd make is in in thinking about this question i think the court's been pretty nuanced at least until now on this on this question uh and recognizing that all kinds of factors have always gone into university admission going right back to when the local minister had to speak to you know say you were okay uh in in the sense that um you know, uh, if you're a legacy, if your parents went to an institution, that can count in your favor in some places. If you're a really good American football player, that can count for you in certain institutions and still does. Um, or if you're a world-class cellist. I mean, so so admissions mm. officers are you know, take a variety of factors into account. Yet the one that people seem to be most agitated about among these factors and feel most threatened by, at least, yeah. um, uh, those who, who are opposed to affirmative action is when the question is race. And, and the question then becomes, oh, they're letting in unqualified people to this institution, people who are not as qualified as I am hmm. because they're black or Latino or what have you. That, yeah. that, seem, that, that seems to be the argument while failing to recognize the fact that all kinds of um, basically subjective criteria are used in in college admissions and and race is just one of, of many of these well well the, the legacy question just thinking about that uh, you point out this that this policy that many american universities have in a variety of different forms that 
that if you are a legacy at that university, you're put into a special pool or you get some kind of bump or some other kind of uh, weighting in your application. That in itself is kind of a racial. Sure. You know, so if you think about it, like, yes, okay, if your parents were, you know, your five generations go back going to that particular university, that says something about your race and class and place in society based on how admissions worked 150 years ago. Um, you know, and given how one of the things I think is very different about sort of how admissions works in, in many places, thinking about the number of students, especially at some of the elite universities or at other universities, the number of students who are admitted not because of academic reasons, but because of athletic reasons or because, as you point out, because of these legacy policies, you know, that's often, you know, uh, just as important a factor as, as the issues of racial equality. One of the arguments that lots of universities have used, and they use this in the Bach case, and they've used a number of subsequent decisions, um, is, is this argument that admissions looks very different from a university's perspective than from an applicant's perspective. And that the university says, look, we are not admitting individuals, we're admitting a class of people and that it is useful for the university to have a diverse group class of, of students from different perspectives, politically, socially, and what have you. And then there's a benefit to the university for that diversity. And there's a benefit for our students to have a, a heterogeneous student body. And that, that in and of itself is a value as opposed to um, you know, what this looks like from the student perspective, where they say, look, I am a better student than so-and-so who got in and I didn't, and therefore I'm being discriminated against. Um, I think much of it, some of the discussion focuses around the, what the value of, of how, you know, what the criteria are for admissions, are you admitting individuals or um, are you thinking in a more holistic way about the admissions process? What's the solution? I mean, because there's a case from the student perspective to say, to say, no, 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 you need clear criteria. And if I meet those criteria, I should get in. Well, there's a really interesting, that's a, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, because I think one of the things that's very clear is that students come from a variety of different backgrounds and educational opportunities. And that, you know, a student says, look, I have five AP exams and I did great on all of them and therefore I should come in and another student says my my high school didn't offer any AP classes but I did as well as I could in the circumstances that I had how do you evaluate those two applicants when they're not given the same sets of opportunities um, and there's a system uh, admissions policy in Texas which I think is fascinating where they have a they admit some of the students based on who the very best of the best are, so people who have the highest test scores and highest grades and all that kind of stuff. They have a segment of the people they admit based on the top students from each community or each district in Texas. So they say, look, if you were the valedictorian of your class in a small community that doesn't have any AP exams and, and doesn't have any of that kind of stuff, we will admit you to the University of Texas because you are the best of that community and you did as well as you could in the system that you have. And I think there's some interesting ways in which that kind of model 
they created it in part because they wanted to create a diverse student body and it did create some frameworks for minority students to, to be successful in it. Um, I recently learned, I mean, by recently, I mean yesterday and talking to, to a colleague about an uh, elite American institution, which I will not name because I don't think this individual when they told me this expected I was going to broadcast this. Um, so, so I will not name the institution, but that has an interesting approach. It's a private institution. And what they assess is they their admissions team, which is huge because it's a very well-funded institution, they look at the opportunities you had in high school. So if you can only take two AP subjects in your high school and you took them, that's as heavily weighted as somebody with five APs because they offer five AP subjects at their high school. Whereas if somebody had the option to take five AP subjects, advanced placement subjects, mm -hmm. but only took two, that would count against them compared to the student who took two AP subjects because that's all they could take, if you follow right. it. Yeah, no, I think, yeah. They're trying to wait for the 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 fact that this is a huge vast country with thousands and thousands of high schools uh which have different resources and and um and and to to not what they're seeking to do is not to punish students who went to a school that didn't provide the same opportunities that other kids would enjoy and i think that's a really interesting approach right uh, translation by the way for our scottish listeners uh, ap exams are something like advanced hires sort of um you know, what the, the couple of things, though, that, that have happened, I think, in, in the 80s and 90s, that I think are really important for understanding university admissions uh, in the United States today. Um, one is I think that universities have gotten a lot more competitive with each other in the past 40 years. You start to find things like the uh, Fisk Guide to Colleges, which first gets published in 1982. So this idea that that you know you are shopping and comparing different colleges, and obviously that's something that, that people have always been doing. But this idea that there's people who are going to be, you know, are trying to you know rank and define schools uh, for uh, potential applicants. Uh, a year later, in '83, you've got the uh, U.S. World and News Report uh, rankings first get released, and those have a huge influence on the number of applicants that universities get that if you are ranked highly there people all of a sudden you know want to apply to your university um the number of uh, schools people are applying to has increased pretty dramatically during this window you know if you're thinking about how many universities people apply to in the in the 50s and 60s people usually apply to two or three and you know, when I was applying for universities, people were applying for seven to ten, and and I think now there are many examples of people applying to many more universities. Sometimes people are applying to twenty different universities, which um, says something about sort of how consumerism and, and universities fit together. Universities are doing a lot more to advertise themselves to students than they used to. Um, I think you're finding a lot more sort of competition in that regard. So I think that the landscape over the past four decades has changed pretty dramatically in terms of admissions, in terms of, of how universities market themselves. Yeah, um, I think that's right. I mean, there, there, there's a there's a kind of paradox here. There's a fixed number of elite universities in the United States, more or less. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you, the rankings determine who's elite, but to some extent, um, the rankings are 
don't really matter. There's a kind of class of universities that are, that are highly sought after and how they're ranked in any given by any given periodical or measure mm. might change from year to year. But they, they, they're, they're, there's a fixed number of those institutions and there is an ever growing number of you know, the population is much bigger now than it was in 1945. The population of the United States notwithstanding the fact that it's also a global market for for uh, mm. there's a global uh, competition for for students and, and for places in universities it means that um there's a much larger number of students or applicants i should say chasing a relatively fixed number of places um at a relatively small number of in, uh, of so-called elite institutions which has really increased the the pressure on students and the pressure that parents place on their students uh, when it comes to admissions and just the demands on kids as they, you know, in, in kids in secondary school today are under the kind of pressure that you or I simply didn't experience. I mean, you're younger than I am, but, but you know, we applied a, a generation and a generation and a half ago, you know, it, it wasn't the same kind of pressure that kids, kids are facing today because of this intense competition for places. And that results in things you know, watch the watch the documentary on on Netflix about the Varsity Blues scandal and then mm. the college admission scandal uh, that recently roiled uh, the United States. And and I think one reason that that story resonated as it did uh, is because there are you know it, it was the nightmare of so many parents and so many applicants that try as hard as they might, the system is still rigged against them, or somebody's gaming the system and getting away yeah. with something. Well, and, and there's this you know, sort of dual sense that, you know, getting into university should be a meritocracy, but at the same time, there's all these sort of structural ways in which some people try to, you know, there's university admissions consultants that make far more money than either of us do, you know, that help wealthy parents get their children into, you know, elite universities by crafting their personal statements and other kinds of things. Um, you know, and and so there's all the, sort of rectifying those those two um, visions of who gets into universities is I think it's still intention. Um, obviously, one of the other big factors in university admissions right now has to do with the price of American universities. Uh, you know, and the ways in which the the costs have have increased very dramatically. Um, not only in private universities, some of which are I don't even want to guess what the but the price tag is now uh, for, for Harvard, but it's, you know, a home down payment at least uh, for a nice home. Um, but even state universities now are becoming much more expensive than they were. So I think the admissions process has been shaped as a, as a consequence of that. It has, although uh, that that's a complicated issue hmm. because, uh, again, because there's a relatively small number of elite institutions they price themselves like a luxury good. Mm. Uh, and and there's a we, we saw this in the UK when tuition fees were introduced and institutions were given initially, uh, this is probably before you arrived, an option of a range of prices they could implement for degrees. But no place, almost no place went for the lower price band because no place wants to be the cheap, perceived as the cheap degree. Mm -hmm. And similarly, so what we see with elite institutions in the United States is that, you know, it's eye-watering prices and 
we're not far off. Somebody's going to charge $100,000 a year. I mean, we're, you know, we're edging up to 80, 90,000 mm-hmm. already. So we're going to break the, the, the 100,000 mark eventually uh, in, in the near future, I expect. Very, very few people actually pay that. And the institutions mm-hmm. that have the highest prices often are the ones, um, you know, so Yale, which is down the road for me, I think uh, now has a policy. If your family income is less than $100,000, you don't pay tuition at all. Uh, and And so there are... The pricing is interesting because on one hand, it's signaling something about the institution. It's a marketing ploy. On the other, very, very few people actually pay that sticker price, mm. um, except for probably really thick legacy kids. <laughs> That's how they got in. <laughs> um, um, no, I couldn't possibly comment. But but the, the, the whole <laughs> you're right. Pricing is an interesting dimension all of this but it, often again when you when one speaks to people outside of the united states there's a perception that university all universities in the united states are priced like that and that's not it's not it, it's a more complicated picture than that oh, I, I think you're definitely yeah the the, the math on, on how much it actually costs like buying a car you never you know yeah, the exactly. sticker price isn't the, the actual price um you know but it is i think striking that 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 that, that prices become in some ways, you know, that much more of a, a, a factor in admissions and, and price shopping has become more of a factor in admissions than, than it was um, a generation ago um, in terms of, of who can afford to, to go where and having to, to think about that as well as the, the differences between the universities and what they have to offer. I have a very interesting story, which I cannot tell. I will. I will. Uh, <laughs> that's that's intriguing on a podcast. No, right? no, no, but I am, well, no, no, no. But I'm going to drop some hints about a Scottish institution, not our own, I hasten to add, mm. and the approach by, made by representatives of a certain highly prominent individual in the United States who will be well known to all of our listeners, whose people attempted more or less to say to the admissions folks at this institution, you know, how much, how much will it cost for this kid to get in? We'll make it, you know, we'll, we'll, we will write a check today. and being stunned and 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 stunned when the individual concerned said no we don't do that that's not possible and they were completely talking past each other it might be somebody who owns a golf course in scotland or (laughs) golf courses elsewhere uh but but i i i so i I, i've heard this story from a a very reliable source it's a very interesting story and tells us something about the attitudes of some people when it comes to money and university Mm. admissions well, I mean, I think in it that shapes the ways in which, you know, thinking about admissions as a as a sort of mutual courtship between students and universities. It does shape the ways in which universities in the past several decades have, have made choices about how they present themselves to potential applicants in ways that would be appealing to 18-year-olds and their parents, you know, and, and in terms of university priorities. So you can imagine you know, the, the proliferation of rock climbing walls at American universities or lazy rivers or other kinds of amenities that are, one might say, nice to have, but not necessarily mission critical to the academic success of the university, but are great to show 18-year-olds and their parents when they come to give a, come to get a tour. Yeah, because they don't generally care how many volumes are in the library. That's not a question. Yeah, you, you, they, 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 <laughs> they, you know, the tour guide tells them, but um, that goes in one out here and one out the other because nobody cares. Um, you know, nor do they, you know, particularly care about the 
or understand the, the nuances of you know, different academic departments and the strengths and weaknesses thereof. Uh, but they do look at the Razy River and they do look at the fancy dorms and, and you know, those are selling points as much as they are anything else. Yeah. yeah. Hey, oh, so what do you expect the Supreme Court to do, David? Well, that's a, uh, with this Supreme Court, so, so the cases that are involved, there's two cases, one involving uh, the University of North Carolina, which is uh, obviously a, a public university, uh, and the other, I think, is involving, involves Harvard. Uh, but they involve basically the similar issue of, of uh, admissions and race uh, and whether or not the, the, the issue at hand is whether these are actually discriminatory against uh, Asian Americans uh, in terms of, of having fewer of them admitted than would be on a purely um, meritorious or purely based on, on test score kinds of, of models. Um, I think given the, the composition of this particular Supreme Court and things they've said, I think they are pretty, uh, I think they're gonna throw out the kind of affirmative action policies that have existed since Bakken. I think that framework is probably gonna be gone. Um, now the question is what are universities going to do in response to it? Um, you know, and there are some, states that where there have been locally been thrown out um, affirmative action based on race and um, the university admissions programs at the state universities have had to find creative ways to, to, to try to get the kind of diversity they think is important, uh, but without using race as a criteria. And so I think the Texas system I mentioned earlier was a response to, to one such um, you know, local issue. What do you think is gonna happen? Yeah, I, I I think you're right. I suspect that this court is likely to to uh, eliminate affirmative action or race as a criteria in mm. college admissions. That seems to be where the majority of this court is 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 um, is heading. But I think you're right. I think universities will university admissions has become a very very sophisticated and complicated process. And I suspect that, again, at the elite level, at least, universities will find workarounds uh, uh, where this decision is, is concerned. Hmm. Um, I don't know how those will operate exactly, but I'm, I'm pretty confident they'll be able to, they, they will do that. I, I don't want to sound blasé or complacent because I think this hmm. would be, a, would be a, a mistake by the, my own view would be, would be a mistake by the court. But I think that, the, that at least at the elite level, the universities will continue to find ways to, to, work around such a decision? Yes, but I think it'll take time. I heard an interview with a, an admissions director uh, at a, I think it was at Berkeley, um, where he said that, you know, he, they had a state policy change where they couldn't use race anymore. And he said, we were able to fix it, but it took us 20 years of outreach to, to create, you know, there was an immediate drop in the number of African-Americans who were admitted when, when the affirmative action policies were taken away. And it took, you know, two decades to get the number of black students back up to where it was before. Well, I think what you'll see, though, is I think there'll be a I think there'll be a divergence between private institutions and public institutions. I think public institutions are much more hamstrung mm. by the regulations laid down by state legislatures, which like to exercise lots of oversight over those institutions. I think Berkeley is yeah. a good example, whereas private institutions have much more autonomy and 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 flexibility when it comes to these things. And the private sector here 
is much bigger than any place mm. else in the world. Uh, to be um, sure. Now, one intriguing sort of third category that so the Supreme Court is doing with these two separate cases, one is a private Harvard and one is a state. The third category are the military academies. And the military academies say, we want to continue using race as a criteria because they think having a diversity in their um, students and therefore in their officer corps is, is important for the health of the military. And I think the Supreme Court in that case might carve off an exception saying, uh, we're gonna defer to the military in their um, judgment about this. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that seems to be a likely direction of traffic in terms of, of uh, how the court's likely to, to end up with all this. Yeah, yeah. And, and the fallout may have, you know, the legal prognosticators seem to think that, that if uh, affirmative action policies were thrown out with university admissions, that's going to be the first step for other kinds of affirmative action policies in other parts of public life. That's right. I, th I think the implications for this decision might be more significant in that respect, in terms of what it means in society at large, than for higher education, where I think you, institutions might adjust um, with some degree of, of quickness. But uh, I think that I think those implications are, are important. And let's not forget, this is a court that's certainly willing to break with long established mm -hmm. precedents. We saw that with the Dobbs decision earlier this year. Uh, so, so I don't think we should think that. Oh well, you know this this is a long-standing practice that's more or less worked. And there have been a number of court decisions that have fine-tuned the position when it comes to university admissions and affirmative action. You know, quite clearly they are willing to, you know, uh, break the China when it comes to making decisions. Clearly, especially from decisions from that same era. So thinking about Roe and thinking about Baki, they're, they're you know, a, de a decade apart. They're you know, part of that same cohort of, of decisions. That's right. That's right. Right. Time for last drops, Frank. What do we got? I want to, again, remind uh, friends and colleagues about the upcoming Fennel Forum on December 1st at 5.30 p.m. Uh, I believe the, the Eventbrite page has gone live now. Yes, the, I registered yesterday. So I've thank you know, already you, David. got my ticket. Excellent. You can attend either in person, uh, and we'd love to see you there, or online, and the theme is about war and how war shapes modern society. Uh, we've got great speakers. We've got our colleague Wendy Ugolini, who specializes in Britain during the Second World War. Uh, Phillips O'Brien, uh, who will be known to many people on social media uh, for his contributions in our understanding of the war in Ukraine, uh, who's a professor at St. Andrews is coming, and a former Fennel lecturer. Andrew Preston from Cambridge will be participating, and it'll all be chaired and moderated by our colleague uh, Diana Payton. So it's, I think it's going to be a really great event at 5.30 p.m. Uh, UK time on December 1st. So uh, you're, you're welcome to attend in person, get your ticket to do so, or to attend online. Awesome. What about you, David? Uh, well, so Thanksgiving is coming up, and, and one of the things that struck me when I first moved to the South 25 years ago, um, it, it is that among the things they serve at Thanksgiving in the South and at other festifications is macaroni and cheese. And so I've been thinking about Thanksgiving meals and thinking about macaroni and cheese. And so I decided to do some research in the history of macaroni and cheese. And I found a, a fascinating article from the Smithsonian from a few years ago that looks at the history of macaroni and cheese. Frank, I know you, you can't really eat macaroni and cheese, but uh, were you a macaroni and cheese fan as a child? Did you grow up? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, 
because it's a you're just thinking at the history of this dish and uh, uh it's was at one point a very elite dish there you know there's some debate about about how it gets introduced to the united states your man thomas jefferson gets credit sometimes for being the the person who introduces a, a fancy french dish into a american audience um but there's interesting ways in which that the the, the meaning of macaroni and cheese has been democratized at different points in time with new kinds of food technology. Uh, so, you know, the ways in which it goes from being a wealthy person's food to being a, a working class food uh, and a food for children, I think is, is fascinating, just the different usages of macaroni and cheese. Uh, I so have I a, this article. Excellent. So, so I've got, I've got a mac and cheese story for you, David, that might resonate with some of our okay. listeners. Which is that uh, I, as as I think I've told you, I might have mentioned this on air. I was at a family wedding in Wisconsin in August. Wisconsin, of course, the home of the American cheese industry. Yes, America's Dairyland. It says so on the on the license plates. Um, and we were in Milwaukee, and uh, one of our larger extended party. I won't say any more because I wouldn't want to identify this individual without their consent. Um, this is not the person who tried to bribe their way into a Scottish university. I, I hasten to add um, <laughs> um, this, this, uh, this person was, it was in Milwaukee. Uh, they are, uh, well, they're Scottish. Let's say they're Scottish. They have a, a background that if I said more about might identify them. So they are Scottish and, and proudly so, and they were very impressed at this bar in Milwaukee that they were able to order a grilled cheese sandwich with macaroni and cheese on the side. And as this person said, uh, once with, with great joy, when this uh, plate of cheese was delivered to them, I love America. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, they should so, have gotten some cheese curds too. Well, we, cheese curds figured prominently uh, in that, during that weekend. In, indeed. Um, there were lots of cheese curds. Um, uh, oh. Cheese curds were very prominent. Well, one thing that, that strikes me about the, the the recent innovations in macaroni and cheese cuisine is they're now serving macaroni and cheese in gourmet restaurants with truffle oil and things. And so you're getting this sort of weird trajectory of, of it being an elite dish to being a, 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 a very democratic common dish that, that, you know, wealthy people wouldn't eat to being something now that it's a, uh, um, you know, haute cuisine as you were. So... Uh, I recommend macaroni and cheese for all people who can tolerate both grain and, and dairy, which I realize is a, you know, not not everybody. But uh, yeah, for Thanksgiving, if, if you think appropriate. All right. Right. Until next week, Frank. See you, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.